Today's scripture reading is Matthew 2:13 through 23. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise man, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Timothy Jones, and I serve as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. And we said these words that we always say every single week, just a little bit ago. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And we say that, and we can sometimes say it without thinking about what we're saying. But I want to ask, do you really believe this is the word of the Lord? Thanks be to God. Because some days, if I'm honest... Those words come very easily. There are texts that we read that I'm like, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then there's this text today that if I'm honest, I kind of want to put my hand behind my back and cross my fingers when I say this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Because think about what we've seen thus far in the gospel according to Matthew. We've seen first the beautiful diversity of Jesus' genealogy. We have seen that he is God with us, born of a virgin. Then we had the Magi come, the wise men who saw a star from afar and came to worship him. But this week, the story takes a dark turn. And I think if we're honest, this is one of those stories that a lot of us would kind of like to edit out. We would like not to have to deal with this part of the story here. We'd like it to be a little bit more like a Bible storybook, wouldn't we? You ever notice there's a lot of stories that they don't include in the Bible storybooks? A few months ago, one of our children who was making a transition from a Bible storybook to a real Bible said something like this. 
There are a lot of stories in Genesis that there are no pictures of in my Bible storybook. And I'm like, yes, that's right. That's because Bible storybooks with explicit content stickers don't sell well at Lifeway. Okay, they just don't sell very well. But that's what we would have if we illustrated all of this because some of what we have in the Bible is dark and awful and we like to sanitize it and edit it. But I want you to hear this. That is precisely why we ought to pay close attention to the text that we would like to edit. Because only one person in all of human history had the capacity to edit his story exactly the way he wanted it. And it was Jesus. Do you realize that had he wanted to in eternity past, God could have decreed that it would not happen a certain way? Do you realize that even Jesus, after he was ascended, and as these works that we know as the New Testament were being inspired and written, Jesus could have said, you know, hey guys, let's not put that one in there. Let's leave that one out. But he didn't. That means that these texts are here for a purpose. One person could have edited this and made his story the way he wanted it. And he left this story in the text. And one of our key values at Sojourn is biblical faithfulness. Do you know what that means? That means we don't just take the parts of the Bible we like or that preach or teach easily. We take the whole word of God, the whole scriptures, and wrestle with all of it. And here's what this text reveals. A God who does not need to edit his story because all that he does is good. Instead, he redeems the story. And that's so different from us. Because I don't care who you are or where you come from. There are parts of your story you wish you could edit. Am I not right? I'll raise my hand and say that's right. And I know that it's true for all of us. Every single one of us, there's a night we wish we could just wipe out of it ever having happened. There's words that you spoke you wish you hadn't. There's the little choices that led to a dark road in your life. There are just those fractured memories of things that were done to you. We all wish we could edit our stories. But our stories cannot be edited. They can only be redeemed. And you know what God does? God does not edit yesterday. He redeems today and tomorrow. That's what God does. And what we see in this text is a God who is able to redeem even the darkest parts of a story. And if God can redeem this story, he can redeem your story and he can redeem mine. Set the stage for what's happening in Matthew. Everything is looking good for the family of Jesus. They are in Bethlehem. They've settled in Bethlehem near Joseph's relatives. They have a house there. And Bethlehem is the perfect place for somebody who is going to be the Messiah, the King, the Savior of Israel. Because Bethlehem was, after all, the place where David was born and raised. But not only that. It's only five miles from the city of Jerusalem, which is the seat of power. It's the place where kings have reigned. It is the perfect place to raise the Messiah. Not only that, as if it couldn't get any better, the Magi, the wise men, arrive with sacks filled with costly royal gifts. And yet, even in these gifts, it seems that there may be a shadow 
of death. We have gold that is something very costly. We have frankincense that they bring that is a resin, the sap of a tree that was burned for perfume. And we also have myrrh. And it's not for sure that this is what's going on here, but two of the many uses of myrrh were as a painkiller and as something to be used in embalming. (laughs) Painkiller and embalming were two of the several uses of myrrh. So just to think about this, let's imagine for a moment, somebody at your workplace has a baby and you get invited to the baby shower. And you show up with three gifts, and they think you are rocking the baby shower thing. You come in with three gifts, and the mother, the new mother, opens the first one, it's cash, okay? He's like, oh, everybody needs that. Opens the second one, and it's a scented candle. It's a little odd, but it's okay, it's a really nice one. And opens the third package, and it's a bottle of Aleve and some embalming fluid. You're not going to get invited to another baby shower. Okay, nobody puts embalming fluid on their target baby gift registry. Nobody does that. And yet that's some of the uses of something that is brought to Jesus. And it seems to be a hint of foreshadowing that death and pain will be part of Jesus's life, not only at the end, but it begins even in this story. So imagine that evening, that night that the Magi have left and Joseph goes to bed. It's quiet, finally. He goes to bed, and he feels everything's good. (laughs) Everything's going really well. We're in Bethlehem. We've got all this stuff that they've brought. Jesus has been affirmed as the Messiah, even by people from other nations. And he goes to bed, and an angel shows up in his dream and says to him, leave, flee, because Herod is going to seek the life of the child. Joseph does not say, oh, you really think Herod would do that? Because he knows Herod would do that. Herod, by this point, has already strangled one of his wives, has had three of his sons executed. He has put in his will that people from every prominent family are to be executed when he dies so that somebody will weep when he dies. It was said later, many years later, it was easier or safer to be Herod's swine than to be his son. And so Joseph knows that this can happen. And Joseph shakes Mary awake. And by the time the sun rises the next day over the city of David, they were gone. And all that their family had hoped to build in Bethlehem had to be left behind. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus, just like 25 million people around the world today, become a family of refugees. They're refugees. They flee for safety to the continent of Africa. But Matthew wants us to know that there was far more going on here in this race to this place than Mary and Joseph even knew. And so he says in chapter 2 and verse 15, he says this happened to fulfill what the prophet had said. Out of Egypt, I called my son. What I want us to see in this is that this did not take God by surprise. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? It's not as if when this happened, when suddenly Herod says he's going to kill kill Jesus and seek him out, it's not as if God woke up from his recliner and said, oh, myself, what am I going to do? I can't figure out what I'm going to do. I've got to save Jesus somehow and trying to figure out and finding a map. It's not as if God was shocked by this. God knew Herod's brutality. He knew they would have to flee, and none of this was an afterthought. Understand that before time began, God already had a plan for this. God 
does not need to edit his story because he's the one who planned the story and his plan is to redeem our stories too. And this quotation is kind of odd because it comes from a prophet named Hosea in the Old Testament. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Old Testament is this first two-thirds of the Bible that tells the story of how God preserved the people through whom Jesus would come into the world. But there's a difficulty here. Because Hosea's words aren't really clearly about a coming Messiah. And the focus of these words is on the people of Israel. What this whole verse says is, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt... I called my son. And what Hosea is describing here is how hundreds of years earlier, the children of Israel had gone to Egypt during a time of famine. And while they were there, they became enslaved. And then God rescued them and he brought them out of Egypt and he brought them back to the promised land through Moses. But Matthew quotes this and says, this fulfills what's happening with Mary and Joseph and Jesus fleeing to Egypt. Egypt. So why does he do this? Why does he do this? There's a couple of reasons. Most important is every part of the Old Testament is ultimately about Jesus. Understand that everything about the entire Old Testament leans with eager expectancy toward the coming of Jesus. But not only that, prophecies in Scripture aren't primarily predictions of the future. They're declarations of God's truth in a particular circumstance in the present or in the future. And they can even have more than one fulfillment. And each fulfillment fills that prophecy up with more meaning than it had before. And so when Matthew says throughout the Gospel of Matthew, you see this over and over. When Matthew says this happened to fulfill, here's what he's saying. Because of Jesus, this prophecy means more than it did before. That's what he's saying. This prophecy in the past, this happening in the past, this event in the past, because of Jesus, it means more than it did before. That's what he's saying here. When he quotes Hosea, he's saying, remember how Israel went to Egypt and God saved them? Well, Jesus is the true Israel, and now that old story suddenly means more than it did before. And it reminds us. That from the beginning, it was God's plan for Egypt to become the place where the Savior of the world is saved. And because of Jesus, Israel's sojourn in Egypt now means more than it did before. Because in eternity past, God had already planned for Jesus to be going to Egypt and back as something that was connected to what God was doing with Israel in the Old Testament. But God knew. God always knew this. And here's what's comforting to us or should be. It's that way when he looks at your life too. God already knows. Do you realize that God never looks at your life and is shocked? He never looks at your life and he is never surprised at what he sees in your life. God is not surprised by the tragedy that's tearing you apart. God is not shocked by that darkness that seems to drain your joy. God is not shocked by your struggles with addiction that won't seem to let go. God is not shocked by what he sees. He already knows. But here's the best part of it all. You see, when Jesus went to Egypt and back again, he was transforming the story of Israel's slavery into a story of salvation for the nations. 
And in the same way that Jesus doing that fills that story up with more meaning, and in the same way that God turns enslavement and struggles into a story of salvation, that's what God wants to do in your life too. To turn the story of your struggle, the story of your enslavement, into a story of his salvation. And he doesn't edit anything out. He redeems what's already there. He doesn't edit yesterday. He redeems today and tomorrow. But here's the struggle often in that. We rarely recognize redemption while it's happening. We rarely recognize redemption while it's happening. Do you really think as Mary and Joseph were rushing around their home in Bethlehem trying to gather their possessions and and carry them so that they could make it for Egypt, do you really think that they paused and looked at one another and said, oh dear, we are fulfilling what God prophesied in the past. Oh yes, that is why we are going to Egypt. That's not what happened. What they're feeling is the same thing that other refugees in other countries feel over and over. Anxiety and terror and pain and fear. It's not till much, much later that anybody sees the connection between their flight to Egypt and Israel. What happened to Israel? You don't see redemption typically while it is happening. You almost always recognize your redemption in retrospect. You almost always do. And right now, all you may feel is your struggle against sin. All you may feel right now is the terror of that report that you're waiting on from the doctor. All you may feel right now is just the anxiety of getting all the medications right. It may be the exhaustion of just trying to keep your family from falling apart. That may be all you feel right now. But just because that's all you feel right now doesn't mean that's all God is up to right now. Any more than their feelings then determine the reality of what God was doing. You almost always see your redemption in retrospect. Our redemption is rarely seen through the windshield. It's almost always seen in the rearview mirror. And here's what that means for us practically. That there will come a moment, if you are in Christ, when you will look back and you will see the evidence of God's redemption and you will see that it followed a path that you never would have planned. Joseph could have never predicted that them becoming refugees was the way that God saved them. But this was the path that God had planned. So I just urge you, slow down. Pay attention to the rhythms of your life. And somewhere in the midst of what right now looks like a mess, God is up to something. And in his time, probably through a pathway you never expected, he will work through your struggle to bring his salvation. He does not edit your yesterdays. He redeems today and tomorrow. And that truth is still true in the next part of the text. But in the next part of the text, it's harder to accept. You see, Mary and Joseph, they leave not knowing, having no way of knowing what will happen next. But what happens next, according to verse 16, is that Herod realized he has been mocked by the wise men, in essence. And he flies into a rage and he orders that all of the children, the baby boys in Bethlehem, be slaughtered. 
And so the soldiers from Herod are sent out from the garrison where they would have been to Bethlehem. It's about a two-hour march, and they go searching house to house for infants and toddlers, and they murder every little boy. This is a small town where everybody knows everybody, 400 people maybe in this town. And before it's over, there are 20 or 30 little boys who have been butchered by his troops. And if you were in the aftermath of that to look down the street of Bethlehem, what you would have seen is 20 to 30 little bodies in the streets and fathers and mothers crouched over them screaming. That's what you would have seen in this. And remember also that Joseph has family here. These are at least some of his cousins and his nephews that this happens to. One of the hardest things I've ever done is I remember doing a funeral for an infant who had been killed in foster care. And I think of the deep pain I saw and experienced there and multiply that times 20 to 30. And that's what you have right here. That's what you witness in this little town of Bethlehem. But this too, God knew beforehand. Matthew reminds us of that. He quotes Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15, where it says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Now, we don't know for sure everything that happened in Ramah, but here's what it seems may have happened in Ramah. You remember that the Babylonians conquered Judah and they took the people into exile. And Ramah was a place on the way that it seems as if what may have happened was that there was a slave market there. There was a commerce there. And they sold some of the captives into slavery. And this is the cries and the screams of mothers whose families are being torn apart at the slave market. That's what happens happening here. So similar to what happened for centuries in our own country. Families ripped apart in this way. And Rachel is the wife of Jacob and she becomes a symbol of mothers crying out for their children who are no longer with them. And in light of what happens in Bethlehem, this text about Rachel and Ramah also means more than it did before. But it raises some hard questions. You see, in the previous chapter, Jesus is God with us. But where is God with us in this? It's hard. Because if we authentically believe in the God of the Bible, we have to believe that God allowed this. God did not cause it. God did not do it. God does not do or cause evil. But God allowed this to happen. And really, if I'm honest, if I didn't know the rest of the story, I would be tempted to close my Bible and walk off this stage as somebody who doesn't believe in God at all. I would. If I didn't know the rest of this story, but there is more to this story. Because what we see if we look at the book of Matthew as a whole is that in the end, Jesus Christ is on the cross And on him, all the brokenness, all the awfulness, all the pain, all the terror, it all falls on him. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And what we see is that God with us is God with us in the tragedy and the pain we cannot understand. And in the cross, in a way I do not understand, but I believe, God himself entered into the pain and takes it on himself. Even this, even this. That's what happens. These mothers weep and scream and cry for their children, but they do not weep alone. God enters into their suffering and God weeps with them. This story does not hide or sanitize. Instead, it seeks to redeem. And the truth is, I don't know. And scripture does not tell us in God's master plan why exactly this happened. He doesn't say. We don't know why, but we do know who enters into every part of our pain. And it is God himself who is God with us even there. The early church, early Christians, when they were under persecution, they actually saw in this text the first martyrs to inspire them. In fact, there's a church father named Chromatius who said these innocents who died on Christ's behalf became the first martyrs. They are the first martyrs, the first ones who give their lives for Christ in a time of persecution. In this final segment of the text, no one knows how long Mary and Joseph stayed in Egypt. But one night, Joseph goes to bed, and once again, there's a dream and an angel. And at some point, I think Joseph surely must have felt, I'm not going to bed anymore because things happen when I go to bed and I have to get up and do something every single time and it's not something easy. And Herod has died. Herod is dead. And God says to Joseph, go back to the land. And Joseph's plan seems to have been to go back to Bethlehem. That seems to have been his plan. But then he hears that Archelaus, the son of Herod, is ruling in that region. And he recognizes that Archelaus is a worse ruler than Herod. In fact, 10 years after this, Archelaus is such a terrible ruler that Archelaus is exiled by the Romans. He's that bad. And so he was right about Archelaus, what he's going to be like. So he says, I'm not going to go there. And they go to Nazareth in Galilee. We kind of get a vision for what Nazareth and Galilee, how it was perceived in John chapter 1. There's a text in which what it says is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip doesn't even try to say, you know, Nazareth is not so bad. It's got a few good restaurants or anything like that. No, he just says, come and see. It's like, it's a fixer up, right? He doesn't even try to defend Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the attitude. It's not a place that has a hot real estate market. No one's making plans to retire there. It's considered to be a backwoods place. And it seems that it is populated also by Gentiles, non-Jews. And so for those who are Jewish to go to Galilee, it seems like this, do we really want to go to that kind of place? But that's where they end up, in a place that they never planned And Matthew backs this up with chapter 2 and verse 23 with a quotation that is a very strange quotation. And the reason it is a strange quotation is because it's not a quotation. You'll never find this exact wording anywhere in the Old Testament. It says he would be called a Nazarene, that he would be in Nazareth. 
Now, here's one of the possibilities I think probably makes the most sense that this is actually a play on words. See, in the Old Testament, the Messiah was described as branch, as the branch, okay? Netzer is the Hebrew word there. It was described as the branch. We see it in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And this is speaking of the Messiah right here. And as I said, that word in Hebrew is Netzer. And so he's got a play on words here in which he said, you know what? That, that, those prophecies in the past that said he would be the branch, he would be nature, those have more meaning than they had before because he is a Nazarean. He is a, in the city of Nazareth. And so it's a play on words that he's doing right here to show that Jesus, this was planned before time began and that God had planned for the branch of his salvation to be planted among the nations. That's what he's trying to let them know. That this was precisely where God desired that the branch of his salvation be planted. But here's what's fascinating in this part of the text. In Matthew's gospel, Joseph at this point drops completely out of the story. Joseph has been central in chapters 1 and 2. You never see Joseph again for the entire rest of the gospel according to Matthew. He has ended up in a place he never planned and now he's never heard from again. We don't know what happened to him. Nobody really knows. What we do know though is exactly what we need to know about Joseph. Which is that every time God spoke, Joseph obeyed even when it was costly. He was faithful and then he was forgotten. And when your circumstances place you where you never planned to be, God is still God with you. And his plans for you have not failed. God doesn't edit the story. He redeems it. And he can redeem your story too. So what happens in our lives when you really take this seriously? Let's think for a moment. There are three things I want to send you home with that you understand this is what this does in my life. When I really get it, that God does not edit my yesterdays, he redeems today and tomorrow. First off, when God is redeeming your story, you can pause to recognize your pain. When God is redeeming your story, you can pause to recognize your pain. We spend so much of our lives trying to edit our stories not telling the fullness of who we really are and what's really going on inside us. Or even just wishing things would have been different and dwelling on the past and saying, I just wish it could have been, I wish it could have been, I wish it could have been different. There's something beautiful, both in Matthew chapter 2 and in Jeremiah 31, where it speaks of Rachel weeping in Ramah. Something very beautiful. Both of those chapters both in Matthew 2 and Jeremiah 31, they are chapters that are filled with victory and rescue and rejoicing. Both of them are. But in the middle of the chapter, it places this pause as if to say pause and remember the pain. Stop. Recognize the pain. God did not have to include that in his word, but he did. He did. And sometimes we think if God is redeeming my story, I need to ignore the pain I feel. I need to suppress the pain I feel. We may even sometimes feel guilty about feeling pain. 
But that is not what Scripture teaches us. That's not what Scripture tells us at all. What Scripture reveals to us is that God himself has entered into our pain, and because of that, our suffering has become holy, and God can redeem it in Christ. And we can do in our lives precisely what we see in this text, which is to pause and to recognize the pain that we've endured. I can stop and do that because God is, can redeem our pain. Some of you are always rushing, never silent, always busy, trying to numb it out by just having stuff going on all the time so you don't have to face the pain you feel. Pause. Slow down. Be broken. Be quiet. Acknowledge the loss, the abuse, the abandonment, whatever it may be. Recognize the depth of how your pain has shaped you and know that sometimes that's the beginning point for God redeeming your pain. It's to pause and to acknowledge it and to know it. Do we stay there? No, we don't stay in that spot. But pause and acknowledge it. This text, I'll admit, has a particular meaning for me because in years that we were longing for children and losing children, this gave a permission to pause and to see the pain in the midst even in the story of Jesus. And so when we adopted our first child, her middle name became Rachel from this text right here. Rachel weeping for her children because they were not. To remember how God makes a path through the pain. The second thing I want you to see is that when God is redeeming your story, you can risk your power, your privilege, your position for the sake of others. Really, this text in some ways is a clash of two kings, Jesus and Herod, each one with a very different perspective on what it means to have power. Herod believed his power belonged to him. It was to be used for his benefit, and his power ends in death. But God in Christ possessed all power, but he let go of the privilege of his power for us, and his power never ends. It's a beautiful contrast. And the depth of Herod's evil is revealed by what he did to those that were vulnerable and those that were powerless, the children of Bethlehem. And part of us today, learning to give away power and not to hold on to it, not to be like Herod, where we hold on to power for our own benefit is to recognize that if we follow the example of Jesus, we will use our power, position, privilege for the sake of others and for the sake specifically of those that are marginalized, that are vulnerable. That is the reality of how we must live, of being willing to speak out and speak up for the unborn, for the refugee, the prisoner, for those that are victims of, of racism, for those that are all, in all of these different things, those that are abused, that we speak up and we raise our voices for them, seeking that justice is part of using power rightly. How are you using your power today? All of you have some measure of power. 
How are you using it to bring life and relief and redemption to those that are vulnerable or those that are marginalized? How are you doing it? This is a clash of two kings with two different types of power they are appealing to, but only one of those has lasted. The last thing I want you to get is when God is redeeming your story, you can be faithful and then forgotten. Forgiven, faithful, and forgotten. Joseph, he's that central figure in many ways in the first two chapters. And he ends up here at the end of chapter two in a place that he never planned and we never hear from him again. And we live in a world in which we are so desperate to be noticed. Follow me, friend me, like my posts, all of those things. And because of that, we often find our value in our recognition. I find value when I'm recognized. I find value when somebody likes something about me. But Joseph provides us with a different set of priorities and it's basically, so what if no one remembers me in this life if I'm faithful to the one who never forgets? So what? It's not my value in being noticed and remembered. And some of you today may be like Joseph. Like, I don't even know why I'm here. I just ended up in a place I never planned. I don't know why I'm in Louisville. I don't know why I'm at Sojourn. I don't know why I'm here. I'm not, I didn't plan to be in this place. You may feel that sometimes. But I want you to recognize that God knew you would be here. God planned for you to be here. For whatever time you were here, God planned for you to be here. And God has placed you here for a purpose. So find that purpose, be faithful, and then be forgotten. There are fates worse than being forgotten. Be forgiven, be faithful, and don't worry who notices and remembers. That's Joseph. I love that in this text. Don't worry about being forgotten because you have been remembered by the one who matters most. So we see here that God redeemed a dark story. And if God can redeem this story, he can redeem your story too. But he doesn't do it by editing your yesterday. He does it by redeeming today and tomorrow. That's how he does it doesn't edit the past. He redeems your present and your future. And the ultimate example of this is in the cross and the empty tomb. <laughs> See that Jesus Christ died on our behalf, died as a substitute for us upon the cross. And God didn't just like undo that somehow. Instead, God took what had happened and redeemed it. And it was all part of his plan. And he redeemed it by raising Christ from the dead. And in the same way, he takes your broken and twisted life and he brings you to life so that you can see the glory and the beauty and the wonder of who Jesus is. He doesn't edit your past. He transforms and redeems today and tomorrow. That's what God does. And so this, even this, this is the word of the Lord. God, we ask that you would be glorified in this day, in our worship of you. God, thank you.
for not leaving us simply to regret our yesterdays, but making a provision for today and tomorrow to be redeemed. God, thank you for that. And God, I, I beg of you, if there's anyone here who as they hear this, they don't know if they have trusted Jesus Christ, if they don't know if they've, they, they're turned to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I pray now that you would enliven them spiritually so that they may respond and trust and follow and believe. In your name we pray, amen.